listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast recorded in Seoul on Monday, February 11th, 2019. Today I am joined by Dr. Jay Song of the University of Melbourne to talk about her first book, Human Rights versus Peace Activism, Inter-Korean Relations, and specifically the role of women in them, and North Korean celebrity defectors, if we get time. But before that, an announcement. Once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also at other platforms. And you can save $50 off your subscription by using the code PODCAST at the NK News checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will continue to grow. Okay, so my next guest, Dr. Jay Song, is a Korea Foundation Senior Lecturer in Korean Studies and Coordinator of Migration Cluster at the Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, which, of course, listeners will know is my alma mater. Dr. Song completed her PhD in Politics and International Studies at Cambridge, a Master's in Law specializing in Human Rights in Hong Kong, and a BS in Mathematics in Seoul, so she is quite the polymath. She is the author of Human Rights Discourse in North Korea, Post-Colonial Marxist and Confucian Perspectives, published in 2010, co-author of Irregular Migration and Human Security in East Asia, published in 2014, as well as the author of a number of peer-reviewed academic articles, some of which you can find on her website. Just Google Dr. Jay Song, University of Melbourne. Her current research focuses on irregular migration and human security in Asia-Pacific using complexity theory. Welcome, Dr. Song, and thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. When I invited you on and asked you what you'd like to talk about, you gave me a list of great topics. I, I did. Ideally, I'd love to talk about all of them, uh, but I decided to focus just on a few of them and ask you to come back on the show again in the near future to cover the rest. Oh, that would be great. Excellent. <laughs> all right, so first off, I thought we could start by talking about your, uh, your book, which came out in 2010. I know that uh, we are not probably nine years on from when you sent the completed manuscript to your publisher, uh, but it's such a fascinating title and, of course, still a relevant topic. I mean, last week was the fifth anniversary of the release of the report of the UN Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in North Korea. Uh, and recently, I had uh, Ms. Teodora Gyubchanova from NKDB on the podcast, and we talked about North Korean women's menstrual health. And then a week or two ago, I interviewed Ms. Sina Paulson of the UN's Office of the High Commission for Refugees, also talking about North Korean human rights. So I know a little bit about human rights discourse on North Korea, but I'm not familiar with specifically post-colonial Marxist or Confucian perspectives on that topic. So could you give us a nutshell summary of each of those three particular perspectives? Wow, that's, um, that's a big question to start with. Yes. Um, well, first of all, that was my... PhD thesis that I turned into um, a book uh, manuscript. And, and the reason why I did my PhD in the UK was during that time, uh, North Korean material, because I basically the source material is uh, works of Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung, and No Dong-shin-moon, Cholima, Kloja, that sort of a, a mm -hmm. periodic uh, magazine published by North Korean uh, government. And they're hard but, to access here. Yeah, well, I would try to do it in Korea, from South Korea, but it was uh, uh, categorized as a harmful material for mm. South Koreans uh, under the national security law, I guess. Yep. Um, um, I was a graduate student and also research, research assistant for uh, the center, uh, I mean, uh, Sejong Institute and, and also the Institute for Far Eastern Studies. Yep. Uh, I had a special permission to, uh, to have, have access to um, uh, the North Korean material, but because the official uh, you know, access was blocked, mm. uh, the reason um, 
why I went to the U- UK was to have the free access uh, to those uh, North Korean material. Yeah, so I'll just, uh, I'll, let me interrupt that uh, for our listeners uh, to give a, another example of that. Uh, in 2013, I went to the uh, Unifications Materials Library at mm. the National Library, mm. and I wanted to get um, a printout of the names of the North Korean people who were officially uh, at uh, Kim Jong-il's funeral back in mm. um, late 2011. And uh, the Nordong Shinwon, of course, published a, a complete list of all the officials in order of importance, more or less, from most important to least important, it's like 300 or so names. Uh, and I was able to, uh, to look at that list list of names on the computer but if I wanted to print that list of names I had to fill in a form which would be <laughs> and that form would be countersigned yeah. and stamped with yeah. the seal yes, of either uh, either the uh, the chancellor of a university or uh, a, a minister or vice minister of the unification ministry just to to print it out it, it was okay the, the lady at the library said it was okay for me to write each name if mm. I wanted to do that with by my own hand with pen but I could not photograph the list on the the computer no. screen because you can't take any photographs I couldn't print the list and I couldn't make a photocopy of the original newspaper without having a document signed by either a chancellor or a vice minister of unification that was 2013 13 yes yeah I mean when I was doing this research that was uh, 2000 I mean I started my uh, uh, research on North Korea in 1999 so ah. it was pretty early on but then it was okay during the Kim Dae-jung administration yes. the categorization as a harmful material for South Korea was during the uh, Noh Moo-hyun uh, uh, era strangely that ironically it, that's counterintuitive and it was uh, it was by the police um, um, not by uh, you know NIS National Intelligence Service mm. but it was police uh, defining North Korea material as a harmful material for South Korean citizens um, and I put, I was particularly interested in uh, this uh, periodic magazine called uh, Chorak Yongo Philosophical Studies okay. uh, where you you, um, you can read about North Korean philosophers ah. uh, changing kind of uh, mentality and yeah. thinking about how to interpret North Korean, um, you know, socialism, uh, that what they call it, yes. our, our, our style socialism. What's the name of that uh, journal again? Chorak? Chorak Yongu. Yongu, okay. Yongu, yeah. And, and that was just extremely complicated to have that access. So that was my uh, uh, PhD. Yeah. Um, many people said, oh, there's nothing much to study about North Korean human rights because there is none, <laughs> no human rights. But... Um, when you look at and read uh, in line between the lines yeah. uh, in North Korean materials, you can see the change of uh, um, you know these uh, different ideologies uh, depending on their interaction with international society. Uh, so I identify three uh, particular trends in North Korean discourses uh, on human rights. Mm. Uh, the, uh, you know the what people are talking about is a human rights in North Korea or human rights discourse on North Korea, but not North Korean discourse. How North Korea understand human rights, which is a pretty um, you know much a Western concept. Uh, how we understand is Western you know human rights and liberal ideas. How North Korean interpret uh, in their own documents. Uh, so the first period was post-colonial. So anything anti-Japanese, anti-Japanese sentiment or anti, anti-Japanese policy is justified as a full protection of human rights. So smashing pro-Japanese uh, collaborator or any Jap- Japanese uh, you know, legacy or influence is justified um, as, uh, you know, that's the... They're, they're the enemies of human rights for protection. So, for example, confiscation of property of exactly. pro-Japanese uh, collaborators 
that would be an example of exactly. of human rights yeah. of fulfilling human rights exactly during the post-colonial uh, you know uh, period but then they went on to um, a sort of Marxist Leninist uh, understanding of human rights which is uh, focus focusing on socio-economic rights rather than civilian political rights so so it's the right to eat the right for to have a roof over your head yeah the right free, to have clothes. free education free housing uh, public health healthcare and uh, dictatorship of the proletariat. They were saying uh, rights are given by benevolent benevolent leader, mm-hmm. um, uh, not something that you're born with. And in return, what they're focusing is the uh, duties of uh, uh, citizens. Right. So in return, you you need to perform your respective duties uh, to be granted, you know, corresponding rights by the leader. So um, now here we are in 2019. Has there been a further change or are we still living in this period of more or less neo-Confucian perspectives on uh, sort of a nationalist uh, Korean-centric perspective on human rights in North Korea? Well, I can gather that Kim Jong-un wants to be a normal leader, mm. uh, but he can't you know, be get away from that he uh, had this, this power inherited from his father and grandfather. So it, 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 there is that still uh, sort of a Confucian or neo-Confucian, Korean Confucian uh, you know, influence on that. And I imagine that even though he can try to evolve things and change things a bit, he can never say dad was wrong, granddad was, was wrong. No, he right? can't. He, that's, that legacy is set in stone. It's sort of you know a concrete thing. Yeah. Uh, and so he has to try to make it look like he's keeping them the same yeah, while yeah. perhaps in reality massaging them a bit into another shape. That's right. I mean, the New Year's speech where it was a whole, it was uh, taking place, he had sort of a, his office was like almost like an ancestral worshipping yes. place. You know, he had a big picture of Kim Il-sung and, you know, I don't know, family photo. Although he, um, you know, got a sort of additional furniture, sort of Western-style furniture, probably that's influenced from uh, his sister, Yeo-jung. Ah, you think she's the uh, the interior, the chief interior I decorator? Think, I think so. I think she's sort of uh, adding that bit of, uh, you know, color and the hmm. taste. And it's sort of a mixture of, uh, you know, American and more, more sort of a European to my eyes. Okay, well, we're coming back to uh, Kim Yo-jong later on. Uh, this leads us organically into the first topic which you suggested, which is human rights versus peace activists. Is that a natural opposition or is that one that has come about for certain reasons? Yeah, I mean, that's been a mystery for me uh, for a long time because um, I also gathered that sentiment in this uh, recent uh, peace forum I attended in Pyeongchang. Uh, peace activists seem to be um, avoiding that talking about North Korean human rights issues because that's upsetting them. Peace activists believing talking about human rights in yes. North Korea will be upsetting their North Korean counterparts. Uh-huh. And this is a very critical moment, you know, this year, last year and this year when, you know, inter-Korean relations and uh, the uh, North Korea-US relation is being uh, improved. It's not a time to talk about, you know, their Achilles heels because, you know, we all know that they have a worst one of the worst human rights records in the world. So talking about human rights, it's just like pointing your um, your weakest point or ugly side. Do these peace activists believe that human rights should ever be raised or do they kind of postpone it almost indefinitely? I think they believe um, there is a, some sort of a sequence. The peace process should go before you know talking about that sort of delicate topics such as uh, human rights, bringing um, like political prisons, gulag in the negotiation negotiation table um, is not going to, you know, have that conversation in a very friendly manner. 
So let's have the peaceful environment first, then we can visit, uh, we can request the visit to Gulag or any political or labor camps. And um, based on the trust, uh, they can um, slowly talk about those um, uh, more uh, politically sensitive issues. How specific are they in a timetable about when we should, for example, request a visit to the camps? Like, do they say, after this happens, then we can do that? Or is it kind of a vague, you know, um, when we have peace or, uh, you know, um, when when a treaty is signed? Even that's pretty specific. But how, what's their sort of their, their timeline? Once we build trust. Okay, that does sound a bit vague. We have to understand, uh, you know, the activists or the peace peace activists or democratic activists or past student activists background. They tend to be, um, you know, sympathizing North Koreans or uh, they tend to be a leftist, slightly, uh, mm. uh, you know, or, or progressive. So probably in their minds, they have been imagining North Korea as a uh, as, as a communist or socialist uh, country. Um, they also know that that was their their imagination. Um they're probably disillusioned uh, by just looking at, uh, you know, the inherited uh, power of down to son and down to grandson. Right. So they, they know that they want to believe that North Korea is a socialist country, mm. socialist state, because they're, they're sort of leftist Marxist in their sort of political, um, you know, they share the same political ideals, but they also understand uh, North Korea is not so on the surface, North Korea looks like a socialist state because all their friends, you know, Russia and China uh, or, uh, or Vietnam, yeah. the, the former allies or socialist country. Uh, but these peace activists um, and democratic activists in the past, they also know that North Korea is not one of those. But from a nationalist perspective, they are the one who you need to, um, you know, work with or live with in the mm-hmm. same Korean peninsula, in the same space. Now, have you ever read the... Uh the book, I think it came out about three years ago, by Kim Yong-hwan mm. called Nanan Gangchol. I think that's the title. Do you ever read that book? Yeah, he he's one of the uh, one of the activists, student activists who totally changed uh, his uh, political ideas. Well, I, I want to present a counterpoint here. I, having read his book, I thought mm. it was interesting that he argues that he's actually the one, the only one who hasn't changed. As a left-wing student demonstrator in the 1980s, he said. Uh, to you know, other Koreans, stop making excuses for the military dictatorship government of South Korea. Stop saying we need to have economic development first and then human rights later on. Let's have human rights now and then we can talk about this thing. And he said, I'm exactly the same with North Korea. Stop making excuses for North Korea's situ- political situation. Mm. Uh, and he said all the, left, the former left-wing comrades of his back in the 1990s who said, well, you need to understand North Korea's unique uh, geopolitical situation. Mm. We need to uh, have trust building for or give you know give them recognition from America first, or uh, security guarantees first, and then we can talk about uh, North Korean human rights. He's actually the only one who's been consistent. What, what do you think of that argument? That's that's interesting. You see the persistency, um, you know, in his in his argument. Uh, but North Korea has changed. I mean, uh, that we also need to realize that you know this is a different different time, uh, different leadership, and what what he's uh, trying trying to say is, um, is is understandable, but we also need to realize, you know, South Korean politics is uh, going from, you know, far right to far left now. Um, and while North Korea uh, is, um, you know, going through the inherited power transition in the North. Are there any people or groups who try to bring both elements together of human rights and peace activism in, in, in some kind of balance? It seems that as a as an academic, I see both sides. Uh, hum- the Peace activists, they, they, um, they're very reluctant to 
uh, bring in the human rights as their uh, you know main main focus. And on the other hand, there is this this group uh, uh, rather I would say in in. South Korean politics, rather conservative group, keeps talking about um, you know the, the the group that keep talking about uh, North Korean human rights issues, including the labor rights and uh, gulag and uh, lack of freedom of expression and no re- religious freedom. And these two groups don't talk to each other. They're the totally different group. The peace activists probably belong to the leftist, more progressive forces. Uh, the North Korean human rights, uh, including the defector uh, group, yeah. uh, is sort of siding with a con- conservative or far rights far rights group. But human rights um, is a very very broad topic, and these two groups uh, don't talk to each other. is 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 um is is an issue for bringing you know this peace negotiation uh, and inter-Korean uh, dialogue um, you know going ahead. Well, I, I do find, I mean, there is certainly an irony that uh, the same progressive groups who would, for example, criticize, say, um, the large number of people imprisoned in America, or the same groups that would, uh, that back in 2003 sharply criticized the invasion of Iraq, would remain silent on gulags in North Korea or North Korea building nuclear weapons and ice, intercontinental ballistic missiles, right? So that, that there is a lack of consistency in these groups. What I'm really wondering is, is it so political? I mean, even, gosh, now I'm rambling a little bit, but back in 2004, the now defunct uh, progressive South Korean magazine, Mal, mm. they had a whole issue devoted to the issue, uh, the, the problem of North Korean defectors, North Korean human rights, and why isn't anybody on the left allowed to talk about that in South Korea? That was actually recognized as an issue, as a mm. problem, by, conser- uh, by progressives back in 2004, saying we know that Human rights aren't any good in North Korea, but why do we leave it to only the conservative side uh, in in South Korean politics to use it as a weapon almost, you know, to attack the North Korean government? Why don't we talk about this as well? And I I think here we are 15 years later. We haven't really moved very far from that point. That's true. That's true. Are there any groups who are not traditionally progressive or traditionally uh, conservative, any groups or any individuals who are trying to bring both of the the elements of North Korean human rights and peace activism together. Yeah, I think I was the one who's tried to, uh, you know, bring this both uh, side of the argument together. But I haven't come across any activists, you know, try to uh, build a bridge between these two groups. Uh, thanks for helping me. <laughs> the lefty, I think leftists, what, what I wanted to say is that um, it's the conservative group is targeting the leftist um, you know, group that they are not interested in North Korean human rights. Right. What I'm saying is that they, it's not the case. They have been uh, thinking very, very carefully and seriously how to approach this issue. When the two countries, two Koreas are divided, when South Korea has no access to North Korea, what's the point of th- talking about the human rights violation in political prison where we have no access to? And who do we get the information from? These are probably defectors or, or the, a very small portion of defector who have experience in the prison, um, you know, who have stayed or have a prison experience back in North Korea. Can we trust them? Can we really rely on those information? Um, uh, is, is it really not politicized for, for political purpose? The human rights is not really genuine. Human rights are almost like a hijack by this conservative group. Um, so yeah, if these two groups are not talking to each other, and maybe the, the, the progressive and left is not talking about North Korean human rights, is because this agenda was totally hijacked by the conservative. And it's probably not a good idea to join this force, to jump on uh, this very 
a sensitive topic, uh, especially during this critical moment of inter-Korean uh, relation um, being improved. Then how do the peace activists respond to, for example, the United Nations uh, Commission of Inquiry report on human rights in North Korea, which is not something that was uh, uh, managed by or, or controlled by the uh, South Korean conservatives and that tried to, to present a whole picture uh, based on hundreds of testimonies rather than just looking at one or two uh, North Korean defectors? I think they have a, have a kind of a moral obligation to respond to um, North Korean human rights issues now because they have been silent. That's, I mean, it's true that they have been uh, very silent on this issue. Uh, what they're trying to reformulate or reconceptualize North Korean human rights issues now is you know, the most serious human rights violation in North Korea is not those uh, civil and political rights, but a right to information, right to access to information, freedom of information, right to family reunion. And that's also in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So framing what Moon Jae-in or a previous No Moon Hyun government uh, uh, have been, have been doing, uh, you know, having more inter-Korean dialogue, uh, cooperation, and family reunion, it, packaging them as a, that's also uh, to protect human rights uh, for both North and South Koreans. So not just, uh, you know, um, having this um, binary concept of, of uh, civil and political rights is more important than socioeconomic rights. Um, so leftists will uh, concern more about the right to food, right mm -hmm. to uh, housing, and the the conservative or the more uh, you know the right wing group will will talk about freedom of information, religious freedom, not just this uh, binary concept and confrontational con uh, you know framework, but uh, peace activists or or, or, or uh, the progressives also framing what's happening now, inter Korean cooperation as protection of human rights. But since it's the same government of North Korea that impinges upon its citizens' civil and political rights as well as social and economic rights, doesn't it come down to the, the point that, as you mentioned at the beginning of this uh, section, that peace activists don't really like to criticize the North Korean government because it makes the North Korean government upset? Those social uh, economic rights and right to peace, that's a new sort of uh, discourse they're uh, coming up with. The peace activist is creating this new discourse, which exists also internationally, right to peace. It's, a, it's a, what we call a third generation human rights. It's more sort of solidarity based. It's a group rights. So right to peace, peace for all, peace for all living in the Korean Peninsula, for example. And these kind of concepts, socioeconomic rights and the third generation group rights are more receptive uh, to North Koreans. So human rights uh, was traditionally was considered as um, you know freedom. It's a liberty based mm -hmm. right. That's a first generation of human rights, which was uh, pretty much the 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 overarching or the dominant uh, discourse in uh, North Korean human rights agenda. But now this um, uh, more sort of a progressive leftist or peace activist is bringing in this new, uh, more receptive uh, human rights idea um, in the peace process. Okay, well, that's certainly one uh, a discourse to watch in the future. It's a hard one for me to understand, but uh, I'm learning as I go, I suppose. So let's talk about the Pyeongchang Olympics, one year on, and inter-Korean cooperation. Uh, you were in Pyeongchang uh, recently for the one-year anniversary of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. Tell us, what was that, what was that all about? Yeah, I just drove uh, back from Pyeongchang, and it was a... Uh, um 
an uh, interesting experience. I didn't expect the peace conference uh, to be that sort of extravagant mm. <laughs> as an opening ceremony. Now, when did this uh, uh, peace summit uh, or forum begin? What was the day, uh, you know, with the opening day? Opening opening ceremony was on Saturday, uh-huh. Saturday uh, evening. And there were some dancing ladies and very loud music. I, I, also, I, I said in my Twitter, I don't know, maybe I left Korea too long ago. Mm. Uh, I don't know how the major conferences are run in Korea these days. Uh, at some point, I guess uh, there's a new trend that is very sort of audio-visual, uh, you know, event-focused. You know, these conferences, um, you know, was led by a professional MC, um, sort of creating a, a momentum, not momentum, sorry, creating a, um, an environment before mm-hmm. the second uh, U.S.-North Korea summit, uh, you know, sort of presenting an image that, um, you know, the world, whole world want the peace on the Korean Peninsula. So it was sort of creating, uh, um, you know, kind of environment before uh, the second summit. Were there any people there from the national government? Yeah, there are some people, um, a special advisor for uh, unification minister uh, and some people from local government, Kangwon, who's been doing the inter-Korean cooperation mm-hmm. on economy and social culture exchanges. So I got some uh, good uh, insight, uh, knowledge, you know, how North Korean behavior actually have changed mm. since uh, August last year. Really? Yeah, they say before uh, August last year, the North Korean pa- counterpart that uh, the Kangwon province um, you know, some of the, the officials and also the civil society uh, representative has been, um, you know, communicating with uh, North Korean counterpart on uh, forest and also, uh, you know, some ecosystem, um, some eco- ecological projects. Mm-hmm. Before uh, August last year, they were all saying that, oh, yeah, why can't you just make your own decision? Why do you always have to consult with the U.S.? Mm. Are you sort of presenting a sort of image of South Korean as a U.S. puppet. So you're not independent. So they're sort of almost, their attitude is preaching. Can't you do just something alone or inde- independently, independently from uh, the U.S.? But now they um, change their attitude, sort of, they, uh, they understand there is international sanction um, by the U.N., the international community, also U.S. alone sanction. Mm. So we understand you can't really do we, uh, North and South Korea, can't really do you know these things um, among ourselves. We have to understand there's international sanction that we uh-huh. need to overcome. So they became more um, um, realistic, understanding of the international politics. You know, they're restrained. South Korean uh, being restrained by this international pressure, especially the U.S. So they're more understanding, more more respectful than than before. Now, looking back at the Olympics one year on, what's your assessment of the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics? What did they mean for the movement towards peace and reconciliation between North and South Korea? What was achieved? Pyeongchang Olympic was very special. I think that was uh, really the the moment that the whole uh, atmosphere has changed, not just between North and South Korea, but that was the beginning of uh, the dialogue between North Korea and the U.S. and South Korea roles, uh, South Korean president, especially Moon Jae-in's role, uh, being the messenger between the two countries. Between the two Koreas, there have been uh, 36 meetings, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the practical the ministerial level or also a, a, a practical level. And they're doing the uh, road and uh, railway constructions together. Uh, so there has been great improvement in inter-Korean relations. And also uh, US, U.S.-North Korea relation is, is going at S, although it's, it's, it's slow uh, compared to the, the speed of inter-Korean relation improvement. 
Now, at the uh, the opening ceremony of the Olympics, of course, uh, famously Kim Jong-un's sister Kim Yo-jong and uh, Kim Yong-nam, one of the regime's oldest and at least ostensibly high-ranking officials, both sat in the stadium uh, during the opening ceremony, very close to President Moon and First Lady Kim, uh, and Vice President uh, Pence of the United States was just behind them with uh, Otto Warmby's father. It uh, sometimes looked awkward, but... Uh, Kim Yo-jong at all times seemed like she was comfortable, confident, in control, and very satisfied with what was happening around her. Looking back, how do you read those images? She's playing an absolutely critical role uh, in um, bringing uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un out of his own den and you know, uh, bringing into international arena, making him more comfortable in front of the TV and in front of South Koreans uh, who are watching him you know, doing speeches and, uh, you know, uh, sort of representing Kim Jong Un, you know, with a female female face, mm-hmm. and Kim Yong Nam, and he's not threatening at all, and he was there. And at one point, he um, had he, some tears in his eyes, mm-hmm. you know, watching all this. Uh, but Yeo Jong's playing; um, she's she's uh, in charge of the propaganda uh, division, so creating all this, uh, you know, extra audiovisual if- effects mm-hmm. uh, when it's uh, giving speeches and orchestrating all the movements and the sequence and who's. Um, presenting flowers. She's always there sort of around. And she's famous being in the background in an important scenes, in, not mm. just in North Korean propaganda, but in international media. And also North Korean media, she's always, uh, you know, somewhere there mm. um, controlling the uh, public image of the North Korean regime. Kim Jong-un alone would not make it, uh, you know, that, that friendly or, or charismatic. Now, the question I ask a lot of my guests is this. Why did Kim Jong-un choose at the beginning of 2018 to stop rejecting President Moon's calls for talks and calming down the heated atmosphere and to actually start talking and participating. Was it because he had he felt that he had finished his, he, you know, perf- uh, what's the word, completed his project to achieve nuclear power and ICBM possession? Or was it because Donald Trump threatened him with kinetic action? What do you think it was? Uh, we're not sure whether we can trust him. You know, um, the official discourse um, says he finished uh, the completion of nuclear, um, you know, weapons, mm-hmm. and that's uh, according to North Korean strategy. That's that's the um, the way to get U.S. involved um, in in you know the, solving their problems. So what they say is uh, 2017 uh, was the year to finish their nuclearization, and 2018 and and onward they're focusing on economy. But can we really trust them? Mm. Uh, is it just a, a tactic to bring in uh, U.S. on the table and you know have less uh, uh, you know economic sanction, international sanction um, to to survive? And survival for whom? You know, is it survival for the regime or survival for the country? So I personally. Uh, don't trust um, this switch of the policy. Well, now, uh, North and South Korean inter-Korean cooperation, it seems to have hit a bit of a wall in the last couple of months that uh, some of the initial energy uh, seems to have faded. We haven't seen much progress in, for example, the railroad project in the last month or so, or the roads or other things. So realistically, how much further can inter-Korean cooperation go as long as the current sanctions regimes last? That was the interesting um, sort of insight I gather from the government officials. 
I think both Koreas understand, uh, you know, they're stuck in this international pressure, mm. international sanction. And uh, set, setting aside the relation between North Korea and the U.S., and what they can can do between the two Koreas is to focus on this inter-Korean, uh, you know, economic cooperation and other, uh, you know, exchanges in sociocultural uh, affairs. Um, so it's been very fast. I mean, it's incredibly fast, you know, how they, you know, communicate with each other and having this uh, a rail, a railway project. Whether this can go ahead, I think we still have to see the impact of uh, the, the, the extent of the international sanction and, you know, how much they can do. Um, another, you know, interesting uh, insight I gather was that South Korean, you know, doesn't really... The government official doesn't really understand what's going on between North Korea and the U.S. They only guess, you know, what's actually being discussed between the two countries. The South Korean, uh, the government, it's uh, stuck in between. They, uh, the the general sentiment is that there's nothing they can do. It's between basically uh, the two countries, uh, North Korea and the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it depends, you know, you know whether whether they want to tell us what was going on. So Began. Uh, recently visited uh, South Korea yeah. and he went to the foreign affairs first to see uh, the minister Kang Kang right. uh, but then it was a, not a substantive uh, talk but he went straight to the Blue House and had a 50 minutes talk with uh, National Security Advisor Chong Yong. So it seems that it's not uh, you know State Department you know informing its ally South mm. Korean Foreign Affairs Ministry that this has been discussed uh, and as an ally you know we have a right to know you know what's been discussed between uh, North Korea and, and the U.S., but that doesn't seem to be happening. I didn't, you know, gather uh, an impression that South Korea was fully informed uh, of what the U.S. intention for this second second summit and what the the North Korea mm. is intending to achieve out of this uh, second summit. Okay, now let's move from talking about inter-Korean relations in general to the role of women in inter-Korean relations. We have a number of high-ranking and prominent women in both Koreas, although North Korea at the moment seems to have more. Uh, first of all, what do you think about South Korean minister, Foreign Minister Kang kyung hwa Is she doing a good job? I wish she does um, appear uh, in the public arena more, uh, more actively and being part of this peace process or the dialogue. Uh, she's been a great communicator. She's, she's a very excellent uh, communicator and very competent. She has many years of UN experience. I got an international sense. But uh, her role seemed to be limited in this um, dialogue between uh you know, North Korea and the U.S. Uh, being a sort of a messenger between the two countries mm-hmm. like uh, National Security Advisor uh, did in 2018, for example. So her role is limited compared to, um, you know, other people in the Blue House. It seems that the the core messages, the, the instructions or, you know, the, the, the strategic thinking is uh, coming from the Blue House and the foreign affairs is role is sort of um, limited and more sort of a technical side. Now, I heard a, a, a contact of mine within the foreign ministry said that uh, mid-level officials like her and respect her, uh, but that high-level officials look down on her as uh, not being a career diplomat. She's not someone who rose through the ranks properly, you know, like other foreign ministers do, and that she's someone who really just started out as a translator for Kim Dae-jung, that there's a bit of a kind of a looking down on her for that reason. And I wonder whether perhaps that might be a reason why she might be sidelined. That's part of the big problem and long-term problem in Korean society, patriarchy. Uh, she's a highly, highly talented uh, woman and person. Uh, whether she w- she started her uh, career as an interpreter 
Well, that doesn't really matter. Foreign affairs obviously need a language talent, uh, but she uh, rose on her sort of career ladder very quickly because she was picked up by some important people above, male, um, you know, senior. So I also hear a lot from the, the people uh, who passed the national examination, the mm-hmm. Wemu Goshi, who joined the foreign foreign ministry, that she's not real, yeah. you know, the government official. She just was picked up by some people and she, she rose to top. Um, because um, um, she had a special connection with this this powerful man, but that's that's very um, demeaning. That's very dis- disrespectful uh, a way to describe uh, someone's uh, talent. You know, she she also has this uh, vast uh, you know experience in international organization. I think that's a bit unfair. Now, what about South Korean First Lady uh, Kim Jong Suk? She has the same name as Kim Jong Un's grandmother. That's true. Right, I, I looked um, at least according to uh, Korean Wikipedia, the uh, the hancha uh, of the the Jong Suks are exact, a- exactly the same. So not only does it sound alike, but actually the meanings of the names are the same, which is interesting. Uh, she was at the uh, inter-Korean summit in April last year, and she spoke with uh, Kim Jong Un's wife Ri Sol Ju, and they seemed to get quite friendly. What was your observations of uh, of First Lady Kim Jong Suk? So the optics are telling uh, me that. Kim Jong-un and uh, Lee Seol-ju were sort of missing the parental care. When Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-suk were there, I, I think the name is just a coincidence. But oh, sure. <laughs> Moon Jae-in, Kim Jong-suk there is sort of looking after this young leader. And, and, and Moon Jae-in did say that, you know, this young leader is going through a very difficult time. He wants to, you know, improve the country's economic situation out of isolation for a long time. So I, I sort of I've sensed this parental kind of uh, care uh, from the South Korean president, um, you know, to North Korean young leader and young leaders couple, and the women's role, especially there, you know, from uh, uh, from Kim Jong Suk to mm-hmm. Lee Seol Ju, sort of, you know, patting and having this uh, small conversation, mm-hmm. lady conversations, or more more of care, loving and caring sort of manner. Now, what about? Uh uh, Rhee Sol-ju herself, uh, didn't she say, I can't remember if it was the April summit or another meeting, but she said something in a public forum about, uh, oh, you know, my husband should smoke less. And uh, some North Koreans there were like, ooh, you know, uh, she made an implied criticism of uh, of our leader. How could she do that? But, uh, you know, she apparently got away with that. Yeah, I and mean, she's setting a new kind of role model for North Korean uh, elite women. I mean, she's wearing, you know, very uh, Western clothes, mm-hmm. uh, well, some some news report. I'm not sure. I actually haven't seen. She's wearing a uh, Chanel bags mm-hmm. uh, and some Western, you know, luxury brands. Uh, but she's also revolutionary in a sense that she's holding arms, uh, you know, with uh, Kim Jong Un, and which is quite rare. You know, they're sort right, of right, not walking behind him. Walking behind. Sometimes she does that. So sort of she she presented both a traditional uh, North Korean women's image, but mm-hmm. also a sort of more young uh, or youngish, uh, or more Western style, casual, sort of more egalitarian husband and wife relation you know in a public uh in a public forum do we imagine that she gets on well with uh, kim yojong it seems that they're getting along but i mean there's always that in-law you know conflict well, yeah. in any korean families I, I i can't remember have we ever seen them uh, the two women together in the same pla- like in the same photograph or the same piece of film footage yojong seems to be in the background she's yeah. she's enjoying that sort of very mysterious sort of uh, right hiding behind a column yeah, or more a chair sort of or something spiritual, yeah yes yeah. so, but you know highly controlling in the background. Mm. So 
probably Yeojong is putting um, you know Isolju on the for- forefront, uh-huh. creating an image of a perfect wife, perfect woman, perfect first lady image for 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 the regime. So Yeojong is the sort of puppet master, and Solju is the uh, trophy wife. <laughs> it sounds like that. Uh, now, of course, Kim Jong Il. Um, he had throughout his life several women, but never really had an official. He never was seen with an official wife. Is that correct? That's correct. And Kim Il Sung, he had uh, Kim Jong Suk as the official wife uh, in in some of those um, you know partisan paintings. We saw Kim Jong Suk using her body to shield Kim Il Sung from the Japanese enemy bullets and <laughs> you know right. fi- shooting her revolver to kill the Japanese. But yeah. uh, did she ever actually appear in public? I don't think so. You know, not in public back in those days, there was no TV and there was mm. no social media or, or anything. Uh, but she appears in a in a propaganda poster. You know, uh, idealized North Korean women who are you know both caring but also strong. You know, she can use guns, for right. example. She can be protective of not just her own son, but but also mother of the nation, the country. Right, and in fact, that's her biography. Mm-hmm. The uh, her, the title is you know Mother of Korea, uh, which I have a copy of in English. Um, now it'll be interesting to see if she goes to Vietnam uh, at the end of this month. I expect she probably will. Do you imagine she will? She may, yeah. yeah. She will She will probably accompany uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un. But what's also interesting that well, we, we talk about Kim Jong-un you know, emulating, copying uh, his grandfather, but also see the similarity between Kim Jong-suk and in Isoju as well. But in a 21st century kind of ideal uh, mother and wife. Sort of an updated version. Although we, we haven't yet I, I think we haven't seen her holding their daughter. That's true, yeah. And, and that would be, like, if she did that, that would be obviously an image of, of uh, Risa Ju as mother. Mm. We've seen her, a lot of images of her as um, glamorous wife, uh, but we haven't seen her... As a mother. ...at an orphanage or with their children. I'm, what about uh, Hyun Song-wol, the leader of the Moranbong band? Mm. Um, she was here... Uh, a couple of times last year, first to visit South Korea and inspect the facilities for the uh, artistic troupe. And then she led the artistic troupe and, of course, famously gave, um, you know, she sang the last song together with a, with a South Korean singer. What do you think about Hyun Song-wol? She's as powerful as uh, uh, Yeo-jung. I really? Think Yeo-jung and Hyun Song-wol, I think the sort of chemistry that's appeared in the public, um, you know, TV, North, North Korean TV and the public, um, you know, images of, of the two is very close together. And one's working on the on the propaganda. The other is working on that sort of cultural aspect, mm. you know, the beauty of North Korea and the songs and dance, uh, you know, the music and all together. It's a, it's a very important part of the whole propaganda, creating uh, an image of North Korea as, as more friendly, more sort of jolly, uh, you know, one to the international community. And she definitely seemed to gain a lot of fans in South Korea when she was here, didn't she? I mean, a lot of South Koreans said positive things about her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's very charismatic. Mm, yeah, charisma. That's what. It, that's the word they used. Yeah, that's right. Uh, not only uh, attractive, but also showing some sort of power, some yeah. sort of magnetism. And she also survived that rumor that there's a sex scandal and, and many right. members of the Moranbong uh, was involved in. And that's also related to Lee Ju as well. Lee Ju was uh, in this sort of, uh, you know, you know, sex video. I didn't see the videos, but I see I uh, saw some of the images of, uh, uh, extracted from from oh. the video. But I don't think that was Yi Soju. Okay, uh, but someone the, made it up. The rumor that happened later on was that Hyun Song Wol was uh, executed as a result of this exactly. video. Exactly. And, and of yeah, course, she, she hasn't been executed. She survived. That's very yeah. common in, in you know these rumors about uh, disappeared North Korean government official. They all they always you know uh, survived or revived from the tombs. Sometimes, although Jung Song technically did not. 
he did not. Okay. And that, that, was that a, rumor was true. And that was, that was the, I think that was the moment that the reason that I don't really trust uh, North Korean uh, regime mm. is after that moment, the, the execution of Chang Song Tae was very un Korean. Well, ha- what about Kim Jong Nam at and the that airport was, in that Kuala was, Lumpur? There was, uh, there was, uh, Chang, the death of Chang Song Tae was the moment I lost trust ah. in the North Korean regime. Uh, because he, he was the last, because he was the last hope. That mm-hmm. can change North Korea into uh, more sort of reformed, uh, you know, countries uh, following, uh, you know, steps of China or, or even even Vietnam. Because they are the reformers, and yeah. Chang Song Tae and Kim Jong Nam are very close together. And, and Chang Song Tae was known to support Kim Jong Nam as a as a you know successor of of Kim Jong Il. And he, uh, he obviously uh, was not selected uh, and mm. was killed by his uh, stepbrother. Well, that's right. They didn't even admit that it was Kim Jong Nam. They said he was. Uh they had another name for yes, it, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we've, we've still got two more North Korean women to talk about. Uh, Che Sun-hee, very well known to American officials as a tough and energetic negotiator. She was made Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs in charge of the North American portfolio last year. And she was a participant in the Trump-Kim Summit in Singapore in June last year. And she met with U.S. Special Representative Stephen Began in Stockholm in January to prepare for the second summit. But right after that, she was replaced by Kim Hyok-chol, who accompanied Kim Yong-chol to the White House in the same month. So this apparent switch was revealed by U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. How do you read this change? Is she being demoted or is she being moved aside for some reason? What's going on there? I don't think she's demoted. Uh, They're doing the role play, you know, uh, bad cop and good cop. Uh Uh, Which one is she? Choi Sun Yi is doing a very tough role. Uh, She's the bad cop. So she's bad cop. She will say something on behalf of Kim Kim Gae-gwan, for example. Uh, She will say, you know, no, you know, some some very tough words in front of the Americans. Uh, whereas Kim Yok Chul is more, um, he's very young. Mm. Um, uh, Tae Yong said Kim Yok Chul is uh, is uh, the youngest member of the strategy bureau within the foreign ministry, and he, uh, he um, you know, is a good negotiator. He's more flexible. Uh, um, he can bring in sort of, um, um, you know. A more forward-looking thinking mm. to uh, uh, this bilateral relation, whereas Che Sun-yi will probably stick to the old book. Now, the last name you gave, Kim Song-hae, is perhaps the least known of all the women that we've discussed, uh, but certainly deserves more attention because she's been part of inter-Korean meetings since the first Kim Kim Summit in 2000, and she also participated in the uh, North Korea-US meeting with Mike Pompeo and President Trump and was part of the uh, Singapore summit delegation in June last year. This is despite her being, her official role as being, um, uh, you know, the vice chairperson of the uh, Committee for the Peaceful Unification of the Fatherland, which normally is in charge of inter-Korean relations. She's also been present at the summit with the United States. So what do you think about her? Is she uh, someone to watch? She's playing a supporting role for uh, Yeo Jung, Kim mm-hmm. Yeo Jung. Uh, but as you said, and she's appearing in a sort of different, uh, um, uh, you know, dialogue, different, uh, you know, you know, meetings. Uh, not just the inter-Korean relation, but as you say, you know, the meeting with the with the U.S. Uh, she's always always there. Uh, she she's not really, uh, um, you know, in the strategic thinking or policy uh, side, but she's also you know, more like a coordinator, more sort of, um, you know, messenger between uh, different different political parties. And different people, different uh, figures within the party. Now, in the coming year, which uh, do you expect the roles of these women to grow? In the north, definitely, I think they need some, uh, you know, positive, less threatening image of North Korea. Um, you know, men dominating, uh, more sort of militaristic. Uh, 
image is is not going to help uh, you know relieve the sanctions or improving inter-Korean relations. But ironically, more democratic South uh, is lacking women represent female mm. representation in in politics and economy. And when it comes to the peace process and inter-Korean dialogue, uh, there is a, a, a noticeable absence of uh, uh, female representation. So the role of of women in inter-Korean relations in general, you you would hope that that would grow, certainly on the South Korean side. Hope so. I'm just a wishful thinking that there will be more women's voice into this peace process. The the exchange between North and South Korean women uh, and more sort of inclusive politics in this uh, very critical uh, inter-Korean dialogue and peace uh, process, uh, I, I hope to see. But I can't really predict there will be more women representation in this political process. But, mm. but that's my hope. What about on sort of the, the track two level, you know, where... Uh, uh, North Korean and South Korean NGOs meeting together. Is there a lot of uh, uh, women representation in that? Yeah, I also gathered this uh, um, from uh, this peace, peace Forum. A South Korean women's organization has been trying to have some uh, conversation with the North Korean counterpart. Mm. But the thing is that North Korean women's organization, although they presented themselves as a non-governmental organization, they yeah. all belong to government, of ah, course. Sure. So there's a state, state uh, organization and they don't see South Korean counterpart as powerful as or as authoritative um, as as them, so they don't. Uh, North Korean women's organization don't see South Korean counterpart um, as equal. They want someone to be represented from South Korean government. So the Minister of Gender Equality, for example. For example, or Ministry of Gender Equality sponsored or, or, or controlled mm. some sort of a quasi-governmental women's organization, not a totally independent civil society. Uh-huh. Do you happen to know the name of the North Korean Association for Women? Joseon Yeoming. Yeoming. Ah, Yeoming. Yeah, yeah Yeoming. Okay. It's a women's organization. Uh, now, unfortunately, the, the topic of North Korean celebrity defectors, which I really wanted to talk about, we're going to have to leave for your next interview because we've run out of time today. Uh, do you have any final thoughts for us, uh, you know, just in a lead up to the second Trump Kim summit or for the rest of 2019? Something to watch? Something to watch. Uh, so the second summit is happening in about two weeks time. Let's not hope too much. I think too much expectation will bring to, you know, uh, too much disappointment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a step-by-step. Step. There, there will be some uh, improvement between the two countries. Um, and regardless of what's happening between uh, North Korea and the U.S., I think we need to focus on what's happening uh, between the two Koreas. I think uh, international community has not paid uh, uh, proper attention to mm-hmm. what South Korea has been uh, doing. South Korea has been marginalized, so watch out this space. Mm, okay, well... Thank you once again, Dr. Song, for coming on the NK News Podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Don't forget, listeners, you can listen to all of our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. NK News is the leading repository of North Korean research, news and analysis, and we hope to see you there. And please send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced, as always, by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Lastly, a reminder that one random reviewer per week will win a free NK News membership. So please review us after listening and you might win. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Thanks again and listen next time. <laughs>